0: Hello and welcome to Episode 3 of Where Do We Go From Here. I'm one of your hosts, Debbie Abraham.
1: And I'm Jessica van der Where Do We Go From Here is a podcast that untangles sexual ethics for a new generation of Christians. To find out more, check us out at wheredowegopod.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at wheredowegopod.
0: Thanks for joining us this week as we talk about what chewed up gum has to do with sex or a conversation about purity culture metaphors. Now I know that last week we told you we would start a two-part series on the sexual prosperity gospel this week, but we've had to change a few things around, so we hope you understand that today we'll be talking about metaphors instead.
1: Sometimes things change Debbie, hey?
0: They do. Our plans got interrupted.
1: Uh, Just to also let you know, make sure you hit that subscribe button uh, wherever you listen to this podcast, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, or somewhere else, hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. It really helps us increase the visibility of the podcast as we don't have any marketing budget. So you are helping us make this podcast more accessible to others when you subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks for joining us this
2: week.
0: Let's get into it. Author Sarah Bessie wrote for A Deeper Story many years ago, a blog post called In Which I Am Damaged Goods. She wrote about her experience in a youth group meeting where the youth group pastor, and now I'm quoting Sarah Bessie, he passed around a cup of water and asked all of us to spit into it. Some boys horked and honked their worst into that cup while everyone laughed. Then he held up that cup of cloudy saliva from the crowd and asked, who wants to drink this? and everyone in the crowd made barfing noises. No way, gross. This is what you are like if you have sex before marriage, he said seriously. You are asking your future husband or wife to drink this cup. She goes on to write, if true love waits, I heard, then I have been disqualified from true love, end quote. Now I know that for many of you who grew up in purity culture, for many of us really, The metaphors took on a life of their own.
1: Many of us are still kind of grappling with the impact these metaphors had on us. Debbie and I want to acknowledge that. We also want to say that it wasn't okay that these metaphors got used on us. It wasn't okay that they were used by people who were in a position of authority over us. And we want to acknowledge that for many of us, these messages and these metaphors got used to impact who we thought we were. our identity and that is simply not true. If feeling that way resonates with you we encourage you this is a safe place and we want to bring you into this discussion as we learn together.
0: To help guide our conversation about purity culture metaphors we are talking to Dr. Sean McDowell. Sean is an associate professor in the Christian apologetics program at Talbot University Talbot School of Theology in Biola University Sean still teaches one high school Bible class, which helps him understand the prevailing culture. In 2008, he received the Educator of the Year Award for San Juan Capistrano in California. And Sean is also listed among the top 100 apologetics. He graduated Silva Laude from Talbot Theological Seminary with a double master's degree in theology and philosophy. Thank you for joining us today, Sean. Well,
3: this is an important conversation. Thanks for, for having me on.
0: Could you start us off by giving us some context for um, your own experience in, in terms of abstinence teaching and purity culture? What did that look like for you when you were growing up in your home?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So my father, some will recognize the name Josh McDowell, in the 80s was probably the biggest name, him and James Dobson, that people would tie to purity culture. James Stops and folks in the family had a little bit of a political angle. My father was more evangelism with crew, but Mm -hmm. certainly a focus on students. And so as I was turning about 11 or 12 years old, my dad starts writing books. He starts speaking, doing video curriculum for one of the first global sexual purity campaigns, uh, Why Wait, which the True Love Waits campaign in the 90s kind of came out of with some similar ideas, but also some changes, how it was framed, how it was approached, and even some of the theology was a little bit different. So Mm -hmm. I grew up uh, essentially with a message my dad was counting in the 80s was really one of the first times the church publicly dealt with so much of the fallout of the sexual revolution in a Mm -hmm. systematic, thoughtful, let's give a biblical response to this movement. A lot of times churches didn't deal with it. They didn't know how to deal with it. In the 80s with the AIDS crisis hitting, a lot of people felt like we've got to talk about this. And my dad kind of took the reins and ran with it. And his message, he called it Why Wait? And essentially the approach he tried to take is to put a positive spin on sexual purity. In fact, he didn't really use the term sexual purity primarily, although it would be in there it was like the positive reasons to say no. And the idea was that when you look in Ephesians 5, you can understand love is to protect and provide. And so following God's design for marriage, one man, one woman for life, remaining sexually abstinent before marriage actually protects us from emotional, uh, spiritual, physical consequences, and provides for the kind of healthy, intimate relationships in marriage that God designed, has designed us to have. And my, my parents aren't perfect, they have their faults, but to me this wasn't taught in a legalistic manner because my parents did and still do have a great relationship, had a relationship with my dad, that it made, it made sense to me. And I look back with a sense of gratitude and thankfulness, even though there's some areas I do differ with my father theologically now that I've just come of age, so to speak, I look back with gratitude at that, probably when I was in college and beyond and had a lot of my theology set is really when purity culture hit. I read, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, was aware of the Why True True Love Waits kind of campaign and saw some of those differences uh, emerging out of his movement. So my wife and I were high school sweethearts. Uh, She knew my dad and the message growing up. So we were both kind of taught this. I remember her back in from third grade, to be honest and uh so that narrative now that we are parenting our kids we take a lot of what we learned from my dad but add our own kind of unique spin to it so to speak
0: yeah well i think we're hoping to end the interview on your unique spin on those conversations so i'll save i'll save my question for about that for later but if we can get into some of these um these uh, the, the question about metaphors. I've, I've got a quote here by Dr. Steven Stosny, who's a psychologist, and he's writing in Psychology Today that in addition to stimulating higher levels of mental processing, metaphors elevate discourse beyond mere relating of facts, affording us a richer expression of concepts, perceptions, and emotions. Used well, they deepen communication, advance knowledge, and often inspire us. So he goes on to say that because metaphors are critical to understanding the world around us, choosing the wrong ones can make the struggle for autonomy and connection seem like standing astride two galloping horses, which is a good metaphor. <laughs> I, uh, so I was curious for you, were, were there metaphoric sort of connections in when it came to even listening to your dad's teaching? Um, were there metaphors that he used then? We'll get into, you know, some of the more popular ones of the 90s. But, yeah. So
3: my dad didn't teach primarily through metaphors. I would say he
0: taught
3: primarily through stories. Okay. It was a story of his own life. Uh, For example, when he's teaching about love, he would talk about, hey, here's the, he would speak to audiences and say, here's a conversation I had with my son who is me, and I defined love for him Ephesians 5, and then explain why this protects and provides from, say, STDs. So I totally agree with the professor you read about metaphors, how they shape the way we see the world. That's also true for stories, whether it's our own stories, whether it's biblical stories, stories of other people. If you go back and look at some of the y material, it was driven by facts and research and data, My dad does a massive amount of research. I mean, he just loves reading every conceivable study he can find to give authority to what he's saying, but typically communicates it more through uh, stories, so to speak, than metaphors. Although when it comes to purity, one of the ways to explain purity is when something is living according to its design. That's kind of a kind of metaphor. So if God has designed us to live sexually a certain way, and we're consistent with that design, then we are sexually pure. So that's how yeah. he would define purity as opposed to some of the typical like, if you have a you know, a jar of clear water and somebody drops dye into it or some other worse bodily fluid, we all know these metaphors, then it's impure. It was really more theologically driven the way he would try to explain things to me.
0: Right, so it sounds like maybe less emotional weight uh, there's there's a difference I guess in my mind between saying I'm doing something wrong and I am fundamentally wrong, mm. flawed. You know, there's there's a bit yeah. of a difference in how that lands. Uh,
3: so I agree hundred percent. And here's a story I've often shared. And the story we can unpack it because it'd be revealing in certain ways. Sure. And when I was 12, I remember like my hormones are kind of kicking in. I'm starting to notice girls at the same time, my dad's becoming this international figure on purity. And I remember thinking I could really mess things up for my dad. Like if I got a girl Mm -hmm. pregnant, would I undermine his entire ministry? Mm -hmm. And I I remember asking him one day at at home, I came home and I just kind of sheepishly said, dad, what would happen if I got a girl pregnant? In other words, was it shame for me, or was it the act in the way you asked this? And I'll never forget, my dad responded because he often thought ahead of time about how he would respond to different scenarios so he wouldn't be caught off guard, which is pretty good parenting, mm. youth ministry advice. And he kind of got down, and he looked, and he goes, son, I don't care if the whole world called me a hypocrite. You and I would work this through together. And... Mm. I knew that in my mind, but at that time, when I'm piecing things together, it was like, even if you did this, you are not shameful. I love you, you you're my son. Yes, that would not be right, but that doesn't change my love and my acceptance of you. It doesn't even threaten this. We will work this through together. So it was that kind of story and experience that really shaped the way I think about issues of, of sexual purity.
0: That's huge. I think that sounds um, like a really significant thing that a teenager needs to hear. Mm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I'm so intrigued. I I feel like going off script now because (laughs) I'm so intrigued by this story, Sean, because I think a lot of people who sat on the other side of that teaching did not receive the same experience in their homes. Yeah. I,
3: I think you're probably right. And that's where, I mean, my thoughts are some of purity culture is different than exactly what we're talking about here. Yes. But as you show in your, you know, in your movie, Jessica, there is some ownership, Joshua Harris's ideas that come through that book. But that only came through the adults that funnel it and process it and teach it. Right. They're the ones with the primary responsibility. And again, my dad, my dad's not perfect. He has his faults, but he's always said to me, he goes, you know, I'm at the mercy of people who take this message and teach it. And if people are unhealthy, if people are not biblical, if people add to it, I can't control what they do with this message. And that's where it gets a little bit sticky that some people haven't gone to lengths to show, hey, I don't, no matter what you do, you are not shamed. I love you. There's grace here. So you're absolutely yeah. right that either people say it and it's not heard or it's just not said and it's out of balance that people's experiences are radically shaped by that lack of grace.
0: And I, and I think it's a bit of what is explicitly stated and what is implied. So I think a lot of this comes down to family units, right? How a family is functioning, how a mom and dad relate to each other, how parents relate to their children. And I think I think there was a lot of fear in evangelical households in the 80s and 90s um, in general. Well,
3: if I can jump in, I think you're right. In some ways, a lot of the motivation was fear-based. But in some ways, we have to look back because I was born in 76 and I remember the 80s. There was fear that we don't know now. Like I tell my high school students about AIDS and they have little to no fear of AIDS or HIV because you can live with it and I try to explain to my kids and my students I'm like I remember when I was 8 and 10 and 12 and these stories were hitting the news and Magic Johnson came down with HIV and it was a death sentence I remember people saying what you know could you get AIDS from a mosquito bite and we didn't know the answer to that so we might have responded in too fear based of a of a rhetoric I think that could be a fair critique but we also can't take what we know now and import it back on the 80s and unfairly criticize people and they're sitting there going pornography is becoming rampant and we're seeing politics change pretty radically even though there was the 80s uh, response from Reagan separate issue and we're having STDs and AIDS everywhere there was some legitimate fear that the church is trying to figure out how to respond to
1: So, uh, we've already unpacked so much with Sean just from this first little bit. We're going to pause here and do a little bit of a debrief of some of the stuff Sean's talked about because we feel like with Sean there is so much to discuss and we're definitely not going to get through all of it. Um, What we want to start with actually, something that Sean talked about from his own experience with his dad, uh, who was Josh McDowell, many of you would be familiar with him including our pal and part of our podcast, Lindsay. One of Lindsay's first exposures to purity
0: culture teaching was Josh McDowell's Why Wait series. So when we heard Sean tell us this story about his own experience with his father, we were very curious to hear what Lindsay would have to say. This is what it was like for her to hear the Why Wait teaching.
2: The video series from Josh McDowell is effectively burned on my brain. I think because it was one of my earliest exposures to purity culture as I was 11 or 12 at the time watching uh, his series. Why wait in youth group youth group on Sundays always started with Christian music videos playing as we arrived. And when I think of my first tangible introductions to purity culture, I'm immediately transported to sitting in a metal folding chair, watching DC Talk and Rebecca St. James sing songs about abstinence on a giant box TV wheeled in on a cart, and Josh McDowell talking about how when you have sex with one person, you are having sex with all of that person's past sexual partners, too. I think in a lot of subtle ways, many of these videos really taught me to fear boys as an uncontrollable bundle of hormones.
0: So I think this for me is one thing that was very interesting about our conversation with Sean. Yeah. And I'll just replay some of it now Mm. in my, I will just replay it. Sean says that he comes home as a 12-year-old boy coming to an awareness of his own hormones, but also of his father's platform internationally nationally as a teacher on abstinence. And he feels a sense of fear himself. And he says to his dad, what if I get a girl pregnant? And which I think I'll pause and just say there, I think that indicates a lot about the freedom in their relationship. Right, that, that he could just come to dad and say, hey dad, Yeah.
1: <laughs> just wondering about this. Yeah, that
0: says you're doing, to me that says you're doing something right as a parent, if your 12 year old wants to, to say that to you. Totally. And then Josh, Josh's answer to his son is basically, I would call it a perfect, Parent answer. He says, son, we're gonna we'll work it out. Mm. We'll work it out. Now, what I find interesting about that is as we said to Sean, I don't think a lot of people who heard his father's teaching got that experience from their own homes or from or got that vibe from their pastors, youth pastors, etc. So I mm. think it's worth you and I discussing, Jess, the the way our messages are interpreted
1: by messengers. I do think, though, Debbie, that, like, on one level, yeah, it's how the message is interpreted, but there is some responsibility that the person delivering the message has. This isn't something we mentioned to Sean when we had our interview with him. We're having this debrief, obviously, later on. But, yeah, I just wonder, like, there is a sense of responsibility that that person has to make sure that, yeah, you're at the mercy of how it's gonna get interpreted, but you have a responsibility for how it does get interpreted if you were the originator of the message. I agree. I I definitely agree that I think it's
0: a very serious task to be influencing young people, Mm. very serious. Now, I think the people who were actively trying to influence young people realized that, and I think they would say they took it seriously. But I think the other thing that Sean says in, in this last clip that we listened to that was helpful for me as well was to understand better the context of the 1980s, that fear was very much a part of the narrative, in part because it had to be. So, you know, his comment about we didn't know if mosquitoes was ca- were carrying the HIV AIDS virus. Oh, totally. That was fascinating to me because y- it's true. You and I didn't necessarily grow up with that similar no fear because we had more information we had more education so I think today people you know obviously don't want to get the HIV virus
1: but there's less of a stigma attached to it can be medicated people can exactly. live a long life with it exactly and it's important when we come to a critique of purity culture that we don't make the same mistake of reacting just based on what's happening in our culture today with me Too, all of these justified and very positive movements just react to purity culture we have to understand it in its context yeah and it was coming out of sexual revolution moving into right. the fear of aids
0: and other stds STIs. yeah, yeah and i think also maybe a growing pregnancy rate yeah growing as, abortion rates right so there were things that people actively wanted to protect their teenagers from. Mm. And I think we can say that without the information, we can't put the information we have today on people who didn't have that information in the 1980s, right? right. When you know better, you can do better. So now we know better, <laughs> now we can do better.
1: That Well, that's the hope. That. That's the hope. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to jump right back into the interview, and Debbie's going to... Um, are on a question around metaphors. So we'll jump back to that.
0: So let's discuss some of these metaphors uh, that some of us have heard. So we've got the rose that's, you know, you pass the rose around, pastor, everybody gets a feel of the rose and then gets to the top, petals are gone or it's damaged. We have tape that became unsticky, a cookie that's been bitten into. For me, uh, the one that I remember is somebody took two hearts and they stuck them together with glue and then ripped them apart and then the idea is like, you can't, you're not whole after. There's stuck bits on either side of the heart. So did you, you, you heard some? Yes.
3: And I actually think in every metaphor, there's some truth. Okay. It's ultimately going to be unbalanced in some fashion.
1: How do you, um, cause obviously, you know, we want to give uh, a sexual abstinence message to two teenagers, we wanna discourage them from uh, jumping online and viewing pornography. And so yes, you know, if we can use metaphors to do that, that's great. But is there, um, how do you, as best you can ensure that the metaphor isn't everything that gets focused on? That's a great question.
3: There's a difference between making a point and using a metaphor to support it with qualifications and framing your entire narrative through the lens of a metaphor. That's different. Now, do you run the risk of using a metaphor and somebody misinterprets it? Yeah. I mean, that happens with anything. So all I can say is I try to be careful to pick the right metaphors, try not to overemphasize them, and try to balance them with biblical teaching and other metaphors so they don't get stuck on one that's just unhelpful and damaging. I balance it with grace and forgiveness and other things. So I think we just have to select our metaphors carefully. And especially when it frames an entire argument, got to make sure, is this really balanced? And, you know, I think if we do that, we've done our due diligence and students might still hear what they want to hear, but I think most will walk away with an accurate picture.
0: Yeah. Um, it seems like instilling fear, uh, has been used by communicators on this topic you know one could say there was even a sense that fear has was leveraged when it came to delivering virginity and abstinence teaching uh, in church in schools, even public schools Um, why do you think that is Um, and do you think that's appropriate so you're a communicator yourself and you communicate on this topic to young people do you think it's appropriate to use fear
3: Well, I I think it depends on the way we use fear and the balance with which we use fear. I've, uh, (laughs) to be honest, I've had people over the years say to me, they go, you know what? Your dad scared the living bejesus out of me with STDs and I was motivated not to be sexually active. Thank your dad for me. I'm like, okay, like I, not as much now because it's decades ago, but his approach was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna scare him. And some of that comes from when you're in a position like he's at in other leaders, you hear so many heartbreaking stories, you read the statistics, you're motivated to just stop kids from making decisions that could bring harm to them. The way he tried to balance it, and we could talk about whether it's done or not, was to say, look, here is God's design. It's good within itself. It's when we step outside of God's design that we begin to see the consequences that we see. And fear itself is not the prime motivator, but fear is meant to support the biblical narratives itself. Now, was that always the way it was heard and the way it was done in purity culture? Probably not. And I think the problem with fear is if, if that's the only motivator, I know the way I would think as a kid sometime, I'd be thinking, well, yeah, but you know, this girl I like, she's never had sex before. I haven't had sex before. So clearly we're not going to get an STD. or you know if it's only 15%, that means I like I yeah. sit there in my mind and think through because human nature is yeah. come up with a way around fear. So. Sure. So if fear is the primary motivator, number one, kids kind of like taking risks anyway.. Yep. and by nature they think they' they're gonna be the exception and this won't apply to them. So if fear is our primary motivator, I don't think it's gonna last, and I don't think it'll bring meaningful change that we want to. But I think it should be a piece of it where I think people do need to hear. Sometimes I'll tell stories to people who say, hey, they looked at porn at 13 and said, it's no big deal. I'll quit when I get old and have the real thing. And I'll point out some of the devastation in their life. I'll always balance that and say, look, God forgives them, and Mm. God heals them. Okay, I'm not saying this young person's life is ruined forever you better believe they go back and wish they heard that to avoid all that pain because God is good. He's trying to protect people from this hurt. So our bottom line is our primary motivation shouldn't be fear. I think that's shallow. I don't think it works long-term and I don't think it's ultimately biblical. I think our primary motivation should be the holiness of God, the goodness of scripture, God's plan for sexuality, what it means to love people. But I think young people do need a healthy dose of fear of simply what happens when we step outside of God's design, because there are real consequences that follow from that in many, many people's lives.
0: For you yourself, when you're communicating it, do you involve fear in part of your in the way that you communicate it?
3: So I, I look back on the way I communicated in, like, my 20s before I was sure. married and had it all sure. figured out about sexual purity and have definitely changed the way I would approach and use fear, was probably a little bit more fear-based than okay. could have been imbalanced. My goal is not to challenge kids. My goal, believe it or not, when I talk about sexuality, is to say that the biblical viewpoint is good, it's true, and it's beautiful.
0: Sarah Bessie wrote this blog post that went viral many years ago uh, called uh, In Which I'm Damaged Goods, I think is what she mm. called it. And she talked about, um, it seems like these metaphors have become particularly meaningful. Uh, sorry, she didn't write this. She said what she actually wrote was, if true love waits, I heard that I have been disqualified from true love. Mm. I thought was quite powerful. So... Um, How does it work to, so I think for me, one thing I think about as a parent is what I'm teaching my kids um, doesn't necessarily prepare them for a spouse who has made, say, different choices, Uh, let's say. And so this is what's so difficult, I think, about the evangelical messaging is it was be sexually pure. You're going to have great sex. Um, one day you're going to get married where there's an implied expectation that these youth are going to grow up and going to get married around 21 22 23 right but then say youth group evangelism night where they're getting all these unsaved hedonistic teenagers in in to get a message about Jesus's grace and they're saying change your life Jesus can change your life Um, but then you can't reclaim like this sort of virginity again and how is that going to work?
3: Well, this is where I think the, the, the message of some of the sexual purity was just simply unbiblical. This message from the stage didn't work and guarantee the outcomes that we thought would be by signing the pledge card and by just going to one rally was enough to turn somebody of all the temptations they would face in life. That idea was just Crazy. I don't know who ever thought one single event or one, you know, single youth group talk would be enough to turn a kid, given all the pressures coming from culture. And with the idea that you said that if you just wait and give it time, you will have endless sexual bliss in marriage. And it was unbalanced.
0: So you wrote in a recent blog post, um, with all the discussions about purity culture lately, I decided to read the entire New Testament with an eye for how it treats relationships, sex, and marriage. In particular, what did Jesus think about sex? How often did he talk about it? How did he approach it? So for anybody who wants uh, to hear your thoughts on those questions, they will put a link to that post and to your blog in general, for sure, in the show notes. But I was thinking for our conversation today, what did you notice about Jesus' use of metaphor in the New Testament in particular? So the parables, obviously. Um but yeah, like where does the emphasis fall with metaphors when it comes to Jesus' use of that?
3: Well, first off, Jesus did use a lot of metaphors. And of course, he mm-hmm. used metaphors that communicated into his time and his place around Galilee. So for fishermen and for farmers, right. he was speaking to particular people in the way they could understand it. So those of us who communicate need to say, all right, with this new generation— what are the same kinds of metaphors that uniquely communicate the truth in which we need to communicate? Hmm. Second, Jesus told stories, but we only get an ultimate biblical understanding of the metaphors and the stories when we take them holistically. So if you just take one metaphor, like say, even the story of the prodigal son, as beautiful and amazing as that is, that's about the grace and love that this father has towards his son and it's beautiful and it's moving. Well, that's not the entire gospel right there. That's a core piece of it. We can't lose, but he also had metaphors that seemed to be like about judgment about people. The door has been closed. You can't get any more. Sorry. You can't enter the party. So I think we make a mistake when we take one metaphor, whatever that may be apart from the whole of scripture and the rest of Jesus then we're fitting the metaphors into the theology we want instead of letting those metaphors speak for themselves. And the other thing Jesus did is he used really simple metaphors. Mm -hmm. He didn't try to overwhelm people. And it's not because they were fishermen or weren't smart. That's not the point. Jesus made things so people could remember them and they could relate to them and they could share them with other people. And it spoke to their lives So we don't need these complex metaphors. In fact, the simpler ones that accurately portray something of the gospel can be beautiful within themselves.
1: Mm, That's good. I think along with what you said about um, we can't just use one metaphor and kind of rest on that. It has to kind of be a variety of things. It also has to be just as Jesus taught a variety of areas of our life and speaking about you know the kingdom of God and not. Um, I feel like my abiding memory of going to youth group was that each week we were talking about the same thing. We were talking about, you know, like sexual abstinence and sexual purity. And it's like that is a very important component of discipleship. But that doesn't encompass everything that I need to learn to live a full, flourishing life in the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. So... Sorry, go
3: ahead. Oh yeah, I didn't mean to mean to cut you off, but I, I would love to comment on that. You know, the story I shared earlier about my dad saying, no matter what you do and say, I'll love you. Mm. As i reflected back, I think it's beautiful, but I also didn't say, dad, what would you do if I stole something? Dad, what would you do if I gossiped? It was tied to the issue of sexual purity. Now that was my dad's profession. That's what he was writing on. That's, I don't understand what it means to write a book. You can get consumed by certain ideas. But probably as I look back on my life in the church in the same way you're describing Jessica, I was tempted to tie my spiritual life to the issue of sexual purity apart from all the other issues that were out there. So if a kid is sexually pure and they gossip or do other things, well, they're doing pretty fine, they're spiritual. And we miss that Jesus talks about in you know the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five through seven, it's actually a heart issue that this goes to. So that balance is really really important and I'm I'm glad to hear you say that.
0: So very interesting what Sean says about Jesus and how Jesus uses metaphors. I yeah. think yeah, so I think I, I like his point that we can't just take the metaphors Jesus uses that we like, like mm. say the prodigal son, the good Samaritan. And then disregard some of the other metaphors that Jesus uses that are quite confrontational yeah. about about the wheat and the chaff being separated. For example, and one gets thrown into the fire, one you know gets preserved, etc. Jesus has some bracing metaphors.
1: Totally, but they're kind of about all areas of life, and that was kind of what we discussed with him as well. Right, which he agreed. Yes, that whereas metaphors that we received from really the only metaphors <laughs> the only metaphors that really got used maybe with our generation were around one specific area of our discipleship and it was specifically around our sexual choices again uh, between Debbie and I we are choosing not to use the word purity, purity. Mm-hmm. even though Sean has used it that's the word he chooses to use um, around sexual choices that's where metaphors started and ended yep but that's not what Jesus did
0: yep yeah, in fact, it's worth mentioning that I don't think Jesus has a single metaphor for for sexual choices. Now, he talks about lust, and he talks about, you know, if yeah. if your eye is causing you to stumble, then remove it. That's a metaphor. He's not yeah. actually telling you to... Oh, you, you got to... me
1: thinking now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is it? Is there any? But you're right. No, there isn't. Yeah. There isn't. There's
0: no discussion. I mean, there's the woman caught in the act of adultery. There's... The woman at the well, but there isn't sort of an active discussion. Certainly, there's no Jesus does not discuss sex, premarital sex. That
1: and he doesn't even where he talks about like addressing issues of um, sexual relationships or or, you know um, social relationships in that construct. It's never with a metaphor.
0: Right, right. Whereas he does have metaphors about money, about greed, about Sabbath. Yeah, about the kingdom of heaven all of these things so it it does ask the question why were these not the things we were talking about in youth group wow well,
1: it's a great question
0: questions for youth group pastors youth pastors. yes
1: <laughs> um, earlier on uh we talked to uh, just in this section we talked to sean a little bit about metaphors and um
0: we talked we talked to sean talked about the we asked sean about the role that fear has played in the past and what he believes as a communicator, the the responsibility of communicators have in terms of using fear as part of their message. And I like that he said uh, that fear is not enough of a reason for somebody not to do something. And I think no. that's really true. I, I personally would prefer when I think about talking about these things with young people, whether it's my own children or... Other, I guess, just my own children. Um, I prefer to not use fear at all. I, yeah. I think I, I think fear is dangerous territory. I think we make bad decisions when we're motivated by fear. Mm. But then on the flip side, I do think I can also recognize that when I'm crossing the street and there's a car mm-hmm. coming toward me, there is that reptile brain fight flight, freeze kind of thing that happens where I go run and I get off. So the fear is actually protecting me. So, you know, maybe there is a sense to which we were given this brain. We were given a brain that responds to certain stimuli in order to protect us. Mm. Atheist scientists agree on that. It's what helps preserve our species. I think fear can play a part, but I think in the deepest sense of our soul and our spirit where we are interacting with God is fear what God is using to motivate us toward a life that he wants us to live. I'm going to say, no, I don't believe that.
1: I would agree with you. I feel like, and this isn't pushback from Sean or anyone else to that, but it could, and it has been argued, you know, you've got the fire and brimstone preachers talking a lot about fear. Their whole spiel is on fear the fear of fire yes of literal hell yes of burning for all eternity yes massive fear and that's so so it has been used yeah widely and it really like purity culture is just another manifestation of using fear to to maintain control to get people to conform to something um and that's i think that's the the danger of fear is real. The, the, uh, that's why metaphors are potentially dangerous. Yes,
0: I think one of my other takeaways from my, our conversation with Sean is the need for us as people to have discernment when we listen to what other people tell us is true. So I think we can say safely, nobody is above questioning. And I think we should sit in our churches, we should read our books, We should go to our schools and universities and youth groups with an attitude of not that I am God and I get to decide what is right and wrong, but with an attitude of I want to think about what's being presented to me. I don't just have to accept everything and just say, yeah, that's true. I think we bear that responsibility of discernment Mm. of what we're going to accept for our own lives as what we're gonna live by.
1: Yeah. We're gonna jump back to our last section with Sean and here we have some more practical, tangible things that especially Debbie discusses with Sean around parenting.
0: I'd love to circle back to that conversation with your dad uh, because one thing that I heard in an interview that you did with Jess um, is just the role of parents, youth pastors, pastors. Sean, in, in an ideal world, like what are parents, what conversations are parents having with their kids? What conversations are, what, what's the role of the parent, the pastor, the youth pastor?
1: You're asking not what is happening, but what? Sorry,
0: what should? In an ideal world, like right. what, what would that look like? Yeah.
3: In an ideal world, we wouldn't have to talk to our kids about pornography because there wouldn't be pornography okay uh, now, sorry uh, not that kind of an ideal world but like yeah i know what you mean I, i'm using it to frame it this way ideally we wouldn't have to talk sure. to our kids about sexual abuse right the reality is we live in an absolutely broken opposite of the ideal world so all of us don't get to choose when we talk to our students our kids about these issues if we want to shape their narrative about them so i've so many parents going i don't want to put ideas into their mind when they're eight i'm thinking The ideas are probably already there. And if you frame it right, you can help kids process when those ideas come from their friends or they see something in a meme or a kid shows them an image of pornography or they look it up themselves. So ideally, given our broken world, people are having conversations early and consistently and grace-filled and yet biblical and that kids are hearing this from the church it's not the only thing the church should talk about but it certainly needs to be one of them it's happening in the home and if you're at a christian school it's happening in the christian school i wish public schools wouldn't even have these conversations for a range of reasons but that's a separate topic so my son is seven and we've already had some kind of age appropriate kinds of discussions using books about his body and images on the internet and I, my philosophy is to be a step ahead where my kids are, which sadly today is very, very early. So, in an ideal world, we're just comfortable having this conversation with our kids. We're not threatened by it. We realize we've all failed in different fashions and we're covered by God's grace. And we just are able to destigmatize the issue with our kids. And so, For us, my wife and I, we just are looking for opportunities all the time with our kids that are natural opportunities, not to lecture them. I I never had the talk, so to speak, with my parents that I haven't had with my kids. Mm -hmm. But something comes up in a song as I'm driving to school. Some scenario comes up at school, conversation in class, or watching a movie, and I just look for ways to engage my kids naturally to talk to them about a biblical view of sexuality as we do other issues that are not also about sexuality so answer question people would be talking in the different spheres in which kids belong it's not just at church it's not just at home mm-hmm. we are confident as christians to talk about sexuality in an age-appropriate biblical manner across the different worlds in which we live and enable kids in a healthy grace-filled healthy relationships make sense of their bodies make sense of sexuality and understand why God designed sex the way he designed it to be.
0: Mm, that's good. So what metaphors, so you mentioned the duct tape one, but I'm curious uh, for you, as you think about, you You were talking about wanting to be one step ahead of them or that your dad um, planned conversations that he was going to have with you before he had had them or something like that. Yeah. So if you're thinking in terms of again, just very practically with your kids, what metaphors would you use with them as they get older? Um, you know, I,
3: I don't know that I'm going to use a ton of metaphors with my kids. Okay. I ask my kids a lot of questions to get them to think and share a lot more stories with my kids from my personal experience uh, from scripture I'm actually, I just, I've been meaning to share with my daughter. I got a blog that a friend posted this week about Instagram and some issue of sexuality. And I've been just kind of storing it, waiting for a moment to just take my 12 year old and go, Hey, look at this, look at this story. What do you think about this? Do you see how people get drawn into Instagram and how they portray their bodies, blah, blah, blah. Just looking for that moment to have those conversations. So I guess if I framed it, it would just be conversationally. It would be asking them a lot of questions to get them to think and sharing a ton of stories with them about, you know, for example, I've already talked with two of my three kids and it's about time for my seven-year-old my father was severely uh, sexually abused for seven years, but sharing his story of experience and redemption through that forgiveness, healthy relationships. That's the kind of story I share with my kids and go, hey, you know, it doesn't matter what's happened to you. You can still experience forgiveness. Just keep that in mind, and then, you know, we move on. So mm. that's more how I do it than just thinking of a ton of, of metaphors. I'll go For cultural examples that happen that are interesting in a movie, in a song, mm. in something my kids are already interested in going, hey, you, you realize this? Here's a biblical way to think about sexuality, or here's an issue of concern, and just engage them with it.
0: Our thanks to Sean McDowell for joining us for this interview. We hope that we have all gained new insight into purity culture's metaphors and why those metaphors matter and how we were impacted by them. Come back next week for a new episode with Dr. Cutter Calloway. We'll be discussing how purity culture was impacted by the broader secular culture at large. We'll be talking about Disney princesses, Taylor Swift's music, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, and the ways they shape the purity culture narrative. So join us then by subscribing in your podcast app or following along. We can't wait for you to listen. Now it's your turn. What are your thoughts about purity culture's metaphors and how they've impacted you? Do you see your life as part of this damaged goods narrative? What new thoughts do you need to infuse your own beliefs with about your life, your body, your past, and your choices? We hope that you will go away and have these conversations with your friends, your partner or spouse, your kids, teenagers, maybe with your mom's group or youth group. We hope that together you will decide where will you go from here.